Hi, this is Nathan Pierce coming to you for another episode of Red Talks. And I'm lucky enough to have Laurie McVitie join me again so soon in the program. Laurie, you put your coffee mug down before we flick to you. Hey, you don't worry. Why not? This is my mug. You can't have my mug. I need my coffee. <laughs> so last time, Laura and I, we, we kind of, we didn't set any strategy at all. We just started talking and we recorded talking and we covered a lot of things. My favorite was that you shared the term you got from, was it sadness to driven development? I think was what you, you brought from the Atomicon conference. Yes. Yes. I think that was Morgan Rhodes. During her talk, that was uh, that was the whole spiel. It was it was a good one. It was a good talk. That was pretty fun. That was pretty fun. So um, this time a little more structured than last time. Let's talk about a lot of the terminology. So you're you're a big user of words. You're a you're a professional writer. You've done lots of writing. Now something that happens. I think with every new initiative that comes to market, and we can talk all about. Um, service-oriented architecture, SDN, cloud. I mean, every term at some point gets misused a couple hundred million times and then none of us know what it means anymore and we all get really frustrated and stop using the word and try and make up a new word to mean the exact same thing as before. Would that be a fair um, analysis of the, the world in my bitter way? Yeah, yeah. It's called word rage, right? Word. <laughs> <laughs> word rage, right. You hear the word and it just, it rages you out because you're so angry because either it's being used wrong or you don't understand it or you don't like it or you don't want it applied to you. You just get word rage. It's, it's a very real thing. Okay. That's what they told me when I went to therapy anyway. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> word rage for our listeners and we'll cover a few things. So so let's, let's start easy. I mean, as this program is uh, focused around um, DevOps, well, ranting engineers and DevOps, um, let's go with the new ops flavors. Now, there's like NetOps and WebOps has been around a long time. And some people are saying like, WebOps, isn't DevOps just WebOps now? And, you know, what's, what's your feeling around those three and where, where they overlap or maybe divide? Well, they all have ops in them, so that's important. <laughs> we just call them star ops. <laughs> star ops, X ops, X ops. Well, and and really, I mean, it's it's using net ops and sec ops and web ops is, um, I, I don't know. I mean, network operations—they've always existed, right? We have net network operations centers. We have NOCs, right? We've always had these things. It's not. Net ops is not new. What has been new, what was the, the reason that dev got and ops got applied together was the unique, somewhat, um, concept of applying development principles to operations. So wouldn't it be DevNet or DevWeb or, I mean, right, you, it, and it doesn't make sense. You say DevNet and people go, that doesn't make sense. So we'll just call it Net Ops. But they're all really, I mean, the same thing. They're all trying to apply these development principles, right? Agile and, and lean, process, integration, automation, trying to apply those to different ops within the organization, whether it's security or network or, or the web, which, yeah, it's really dev. I, you know, I don't understand web ops. Let's, let's pretend that one doesn't exist. 
Okay, I think I even saw Dead Metal a few times, and that one's already come and gone. I, I haven't seen it in a little while because I don't, I don't know where that was going. But I like the angle you just took that. I mean, the common theme across them all, though, especially with this dev flavor being brought to them all, is just the way that you behave and operationalize. So, for example, managing the, converse, the, the configurations of infrastructure, people need to start doing that in a more dev way, source code management type ways, where I'm actually able to say this is the difference between those two configs. I, I've seen people use GitHub. Um, actually as ways of managing or, or even media wikis. I think we talked a little bit about that last time because it can show a difference between two configurations, but it's a shared tool that everybody can see. Well, that was the, the, the switch configuration last week and this is the configuration this week and that guy made the change between the two versus someone just telnetting in and pasting a new set of commands kind of thing. So, so that, that is a common theme across all of these, isn't it? This, this new DevOps, but it's not all of it. No, it's not all of it, but that's that's a big part of it, right? Is applying that that principle to it. As far as automation and just being able to scale a little bit better, right? Manage the configuration. It's, it's software is eating everything, right? That's that's where you get into infrastructure as code, treating it like you would code artifacts. A configuration is a code artifact. Put it in a repository, diff it, version it manage it, review it, you know, do all of those terrible things that dev has to do. Basically, you know, that's the, let's make everybody as miserable as dev by making them do all of these horrible things <laughs> that we all hate to do, but that are very important to making sure that you have quality code that's, right, it's repeatable, you can keep building it, you can keep deploying it, the same concepts. I mean, it's, it's a necessary evil in dev to do these things, and it should be as well in you know the other areas of you know network and security if you're going to do things like automation or orchestration or treat um, you know treat everything basically as more of a software construct instead of discrete devices so in, instead of um, instead of just sadness driven development we can then have sadness driven networking <laughs> we can all be sad together with that frustrating Task. The, the latter part there, it was more of a cultural change. So, so we need to be more dev thinking with the way that we manage configurations, etc. But the, the last part there was, I mean, the driver that why a lot of that happens is because we need to automate and we need to be faster at doing things. So those tools are, are not exciting or fun maybe to implement, but it's the implementation of those tools that allows you to step away from a lot of the operational risks that come with the, the manual administrative process. And that's the thinking that devs are actually leagues ahead in. And we need to bring that into net ops and you know, infrastructure uh, operations as well. Is, is that a fair summary? It is, it, it does. There are cultural aspects to it, right? There are, there are some things that are done by net ops today that can be self-service provisioned by ops, right, add your infrastructure operations, or even developers, right, being able to provision certain things or do certain things um, in a deployment process. I need a new load balancer. What do I do? Um, where then it becomes necessary for that cultural aspect of DevOps, where you need to actually, like, the network guys have to go, okay, what is it you need? And how can we provide that to you? What kind of an API do you need? What kind of an interface? Do you want a little web page? Do you want an API? How do you want to interface with this and actually communicate with them to understand 
what it is that they need to do so that you can then automate it and no longer have to have that part of your, oh, a ticket came in. We, you know, that's, that's inefficient to do that 500 times a day. Um, so to be able to offload that, but you can't, you know, I, developers know that you can't just, well, you can, but you shouldn't just make an app and not care how the user is going to use it, right? A successful app actually worries about user interface, how they, how they deal with it, navigate it, things like that. And if you're going to do that in the network or security, you've got to talk to the people who are going to use that to provision whatever service you're offering. And that means communication. You have to go talk to them, which means you have to go outside that little room and that queue. You have to go down the hall. <laughs> you have to find these people, bring them pizza, because they'll, they'll talk better, and sit down and have a conversation with them. And that, but that fosters that, that communication environment. Right, where you're actually understanding, you're going, oh, I didn't know you had apps that did this. Well, you might have ideas about other services they need, or you know, as they're talking about what they need, right? You're gonna foster a better understanding of what each other needs. Plus, devils start understanding how hard it is. You know, okay, well, we have to do X and Y and Z, or for you to do this, we need to also do, right, we need to pull in security for that piece, and so you get kind of some empathy going on. Some, some of the folks in the field would say that empathy is necessary. You have to actually feel bad for those guys, and they need to feel bad for you. Um, again, we're back to the sadness thing. What is it with you? It's not all sadness. It's good. Empathy really is is important, and maybe maybe I shouldn't shouldn't focus on empathy of sadness. It can be empathy of of common goals. <laughs> And moving forward, and maybe not just empathy that we're all sad together. Um, so yeah, I'll try, I'll try to drop the sadness thing. From okay, drop. Yeah, yeah, because it's really about it's all levels good. of what the common goal is. Yes, it's it's about goodness. It's about. It, I mean, empathy can be. I care enough about the dev guys so that their app is successful, and the app guys care that they're not overloading the network guys. Right? They, I mean, they have this this common right. Hey. You know, we need to take care of each other. We all work for the same business. We're all trying to achieve the same goal, which is we'd like a job next year. So let's work together to make sure that happens by successfully rolling out these apps as soon as we can. Yeah, that's 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 fair. Now, I saw I saw a term. I haven't seen this one as often, but um, ops dev. I came across a couple of times. Yeah, that's flashing my head as well when I first saw it. But I think what the attempt was was someone was trying to show that it isn't just a case of developers now creeping further into ops. There's also ops people learning some of the art of dev practices and kind of coming the other direction. Now, I'm not saying that ops dev is a is a as common a word or maybe clearly defined, but I, I, it was an interesting. It was an article trying to just position that there's a meeting in the middle and not just, this, this isn't a case where ops people should be afraid that devs are just going to take over their entire domain and then it's gone. And that's true. They're, well, okay. It's mostly true. They're not going to if <laughs> infrastructure and if, right, there's, there is, um, so I was out in Kansas City talking to one of our user groups, and one of the presentations was about how we built this self-provisioning system for these services. One of the things that they were very, I guess, um, I don't know, not surprised about, but just 
kind of in wonder about was the amount of dev things they had to learn. They had to learn about JIRA, they had to learn about languages, about SOAP, about REST, about protocols, about how to interface with things, about how to integrate with other tools like their ticketing system. They had to learn to do all the things that dev does in order to integrate the systems they needed to build this provisioning so that they could offload that, so they could scale, right? Their goal was we need to scale operationally because we can't hire anybody else. So we have to cut back our own load. So, they, but they had to learn all these dev things. So they had to learn how to code. They have to write code. They had to learn how to manage releases, just like dev does. They had to learn how to integrate. They had to learn how to write APIs. So they have to become developers of a sort, as much as you know these the the dev guys are learning how to do ops of a sort as they're doing deployments and integrating these things together. So you've got you know a collision of both worlds. So there's their dev won't take over unless nobody in infra network and security learns how to code. There is some amount of you are going to have to write code of some kind, whether it's Perl or ugh, Python ugh, or <laughs> I'm a true developer. I don't. I don't like. I don't like either of these languages. Write so, a note. Everybody likes Language is that how it works? Yeah, <laughs> but they have to learn to code, right? There is. I said this like I don't know how many years ago when cloud first started coming up, and we started talking about how we're going to make these things interoperate, and we started talking about the infrastructure layer and how we're going to make those interoperate. How are we going to integrate that? And we started talking about this. There is a new role rising right in IT that is basically their infrastructure developers, their network, their developers, right? These are the guys that understand how to get at the APIs, how to do development, and how to write code in order to do the automation and orchestration that's necessary, not only to move things through the pipeline, but also just to be able to do you know their little tasks every day. They have to, these are these are apps they're writing. If they don't write it, then Dev's going to write it. So will Dev take over? Well, I mean, you know, in a very existential sense, yes, of course, Dev is taking over. But that doesn't mean that the network guys aren't um, aren't a part of that takeover, right? They can become that, or they can assist in that. Because after all, there's still network stuff that developers don't learn. I went through, you know, a master's degree, didn't learn a whole lot about networking. There's not a whole lot they teach you. I can code, I can do databases, I learned about AI, I learned about system design, but nothing about networking, right? No, nobody sat down and taught you about networking. That's a separate thing, um, and it's, it's a different world. So you really have to have somebody who understands networking to be able to do that development, but if you, know, if you don't want to do it, a dev will come in and learn. It'd be great if there was, um, if if there's some kind of like dev boot camp that infrastructure people could start with, that just even at least explain some of the principles to, to even be able to facilitate the conversation of why devs are saying, I need to address your resources as X and I need to do it via Y and Z. And to explain why we use silly words like YAML and <laughs> those kind of things and like it'd be great if there was a whole yeah intro kind of boot camp i think for okay 
let's get you off the CLI and onto this world, this paradigm, because I, I, I want to bring our traditional NetOps people, I want to bring them with us on this journey. I'd rather that happen and have this meeting in the middle with devs where they can sit and understand, okay, the developer, it, it's not always a case of just, I'm going to make a REST call. You need to tell me the JSON payload and how to format it so that when I make the REST call to your device, it's going to apply the configuration I need. I mean, I, I think a lot of people talk about that as the only step that's really needed for programmable infrastructure, but that is absolutely not true because there are often more complicated systems. Let's take application firewall. Application firewalls use heuristic, most heuristic Fail. <laughs> I can't stop people from calling me. It just, it happened. That's so, probably Publisher's Clearinghouse, and now I missed the million dollars, and I have to spend the rest of my time talking to you. Way to go. <laughs> Anywho. So yeah, so let's take web app firewalls. What it, these are unique to every deployment. Now, actually, the developer has um, a, a lot more information about the application. They might have information about the sizing of the app and even like what Unicode characters might be supported in a field. And they can provide that information that's useful to the WAF policy at the time of deployment. So that WAF policy can't just be called by a REST call and a JSON payload. In fact, that WAF policy might be getting maintained by a dev team who are hosting that policy in another system altogether. So maybe they need to pull in via a HTTP reference the WIFE policy at the time of deployment. So suddenly it's not just, oh, I just need a REST call to be able to go, bring this interface up and you know, put this route on, on that router. Actually, it's infinitely more complicated than that. And that's where we get things like sec dev ops. Which, and obviously SEC, anything with security comes later than a party because whenever you have a meeting, there's people obviously within organizations that bring the security guys last because they're sometimes referred to as the no team. Um, <laughs> the SEC DevOps, they need to be part of this as well. It's not just bring an interface up or, or add load balancing to that IP address. There's so many more layer seven services that need to be part of this. And, and, and that's why SEC DevOps needs to be equally as important to just, is your technology able to present an API I can program? Yeah. That's all you, yeah? I, I, I agree. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't agree with the term. I don't think sec DevOps, I mean, I really, I don't, I don't think, I think maybe that's where we started having the problem is, you know, I mean, one of the problems that DevOps was trying to solve was the fact that we're siloed, right? We have, we have very distinct, right? There are four ops, right? I mean, you get Picard, look, ah! Um, there really are, there are ops, there are silos. Um, and trying to break those down in order to do exactly what you're just, right, described, right? Being able to understand that security and, and dev, that dev has some information, the security guys have the other part, and then there's the people who actually deploy it. All these people need to get together. By continuing to segment people into sec DevOps and net DevOps and dev DevOps, Right? We're just reinforcing the notion of silos and we're not encouraging communications. What we need to do is just say, look, you need to apply this concept of DevOps to security, to the network. You need to apply that and make it more of an overreaching right, effort, a cultural transformation, if you will, that's going to actually like breach 
breach the, the gaps between these the little mini organizations and actually get some of that communication to go. Right? Conway's law is always referenced in DevOps, and that's that any system you build right, is going to mirror the organizational structure in your org, right? If you, you yeah. don't communicate, you're not going to build a system that communicates well. You have to start playing nice with each other in order to build the kind of systems that you're talking about where it is SEC and Dev and Ops together to do this, rather than just giving them a fancy name. I, I, I don't I, like labels. I think there is a genuine sickness within the technology industry to label everything. And if you look at where we come from, where it was all IETF standards and drafts, and we, we do still drag that into this modern day where we have to define and have clear lines. And actually, it's not like that anymore when so many different parts of the silos programmable and, and uh, can interact with elements outside of its previous domain of functionality, then we, we just can't do that anymore. But we're, we're stuck with this sickness of wanting to define these clear lines. And I, I really like that you, you brought that up there because DevOps isn't about just trying to lie, lie, label a specific role and a persona in an organization that does something. It's a cultural and almost philosophical change to the way we do things that applies to different personas and roles within an organization. Is, is that a better way of saying it? Yes. Yes, you should just apply. It's a DevOps approach. You take a DevOps approach to things. You take you apply DevOps philosophy to your to your you know way of, of doing things. Anything other than I'm sec dev netops today because that's what I do, right? It just it just it it's just bad. And it and it irritates people because they don't know what that means. Are you are you SecOps or are you NetOps? Well, um so I do some security and some networking, and obviously I do ops. So maybe I'm maybe I'm both, right? And then you get SecNet DevOps, and you get they don't like cloud either. For I mean, look at the problems we've had just the cloud label, right? What is cloud? Well, it's somebody else's computer, but you know, I, more broadly, right? You've got there's SaaS, there's PaaS, there's infrastructure as a service. That would never you can't just say right doesn't work they needed a better one but so you've got different types of cloud now you've got private you've got on-prem right you've got private off-prem you've got co-location and you've got public and then sometimes you have you just it's too much right people don't they don't even know what you mean when you say cloud anymore DevOps and, and all the the ops like that are getting to be the same way nobody knows what it means um, but they know what they want they want to scale they want to reduce their costs and they want to do it faster, right? I mean, that's that's really what it is. And whatever you want to call it, that's what they want to do. I, I actually really like that you, you touched on cloud there as well. I still today cling to one of the really, really early definitions, which just means utility model. That, that's cloud. It's just utility model versus I bought it and it's my own stuff. I'm now going to use someone else's stuff and I'll just pay for what? I need of that stuff. Whether it's yeah. infrastructure, it's still, I can install all those exact same platforms in my own data center, or I can pay for them as I use them, which means a utility 
model. And I think things were great when that's the whole definition. <laughs> and then it just got really blurry and people needed to have a private cloud. Well, how many people actually have a utility model for their own infrastructure in their own data center? I think there are do. companies that will let you do that. They'll actually lease you your they entire... No, 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 no. Well, hold the phone, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Talk to the hand, right? <laughs> Every enterprise has done a utility type billing model since they started with mainframes and had shared compute because they did chargebacks. Chargebacks are a form of utility computing, right? That can be easily modified. So the concept of you're paying for this and you're paying for that. I used to have to mark my time down, right? By project. Who, who was I billing internally? every week on my time card. I'm a salaried employee, I still have to break it up because they are charged, each project, based on the number of hours that I spent on their project. So the concept of a utility model is not foreign to an enterprise, never has been. So it is there, so they do, they do that, I mean it's all accounting tricks. I mean that's, when you get down to it, yes, it still all comes out of the bottom line for most organizations. But internally, they very much do split up all of their budgets and pay things out by project and, and on an as-use basis. So I think the notion of having something like that on-premise was inevitable, right? And the data I see is that, yeah, they're going to do it on-premise, right? They're going to shuttle what they can off, right? The stuff that they've been buying for years that they didn't, <laughs> didn't want to buy in the first place. <laughs> Um, and they didn't want to maintain because it was too expensive um, and put that off on cloud. All the commodity stuff that's all going SaaS, way to go because, you know, that time was, is better spent doing other things. But a lot of their other stuff, they're putting it on premise in a cloud or a cloud-like, as Cindy says, um, uh, our market intelligence director, right? Cloud-like environment. I prefer that term, actually. I yes. Yeah. I think cloud-like works <laughs> very well. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just calling everything a cloud. Like, oh my. It's all clouds everywhere. If I borrow my friend's bicycle to ride to the store, is that a cloud bicycle now? Like, I, I don't know. It's someone else's stuff. Like, yeah. Um, but it's interesting that this conversation uh, is just naturally steered towards cloud, I mean, there is the fact that I directly asked you about clouds, but it is, it, I find it interesting that we, we got to cloud because that's how it actually evolved. Instead of just being utility model, it, it immediately turned with, well, how can we best optimize and make, make use of a utility model? And actually, that's through integration and automation and having things spin up and, more importantly, spin down when we are no longer using them. Otherwise, we were just shifting the problem to someone else's machine, which would have been a cloud provider or a SaaS model. So, so it, it's, it, they're so intertwined that it's crazy. Like, I think this whole ops, operational shift to automation had to happen for cloud to actually make any sense to anyone. Well, I think cloud dr drove that change, right? Because of the, I mean, cloud was highly disruptive, not because of pricing, not because, you know, it was swipe a credit card, because things don't work that way in the enterprise. But 
because of its very nature, the way it was built out, the self-service, the ability to automate and, and handle processes automatically and kick things off and bring things down, that was way disruptive, right? The enterprise, now they're going, we want that. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we become that efficient? I mean, it was, it was the glorious nature of programmability in cloud that really was the disruptive aspect of it. If you look at what's happening now in the market, if you discount SaaS, <laughs> I get in trouble when I say that. Market, yeah. <laughs> um, but if you discount, right, that SaaS is not like right what people want for cloud, right? What they when when they the enterprise says I'm doing a private cloud now, they're really talking about the the AWS model, the rack space, the Azure. I want that kind of flexibility, agility. I want the programmability. I want the self-service and the automation. I want all that goodness in my data center because it is more efficient, it is more agile, and it scales faster. Yeah. That's what we want. How do we get it? Right? And that's naturally drives DevOps because you can't get there manually. Nobody's fast enough. You can't, you, you can't, you don't have enough budget to do, right? You just can't. It doesn't work that way. So that kind of naturally drives the DevOps kind of approach into the enterprise because I don't think you can do cloud without DevOps in the in the enterprise. Not with those silos and manual processes between each silo stepping along. It's just right. it's yeah. not possible. So now this brings us on to, to the next term, pulling it back out of the clouds. Okay. Yeah. And uh, back into the topic at hand. So um, I think some terms that I see far too often get used interchangeably. So CI and CD, continuous integration and continuous deployment. Now I know, I know this is a hot one for you because I um, just mashed them together one day and I saw your reaction. So uh, Laurie, they're just the same thing, aren't they? CI and CD. We can just move on, right? No. No, we, we definitely need to have a talk about CI, CD, and CD. This is the problem because there are two CDs, right? Yeah. CI and CD do go together. It's continuous integration, continuous delivery. When an application developer says they're delivering an application, what they mean is, here, deploy it, right? That's their delivery. It's ready. So continuous integration is that process of continually building and integrating the tests that need to be done. Um, you know, we're basically getting a piece of software ready to be delivered. That all rolls into continuous delivery. This is ready to deliver to production. Ready to. Doesn't mean it is. It just means we are ready to do this continually. We're always ready to deliver. Hoorah. <laughs> continuous deployment is what happens afterwards. If you ever, if you look at the CI/CD continuum, there's one piece in it where it says production, and it's a big manual box right now. Yeah. Right? They recognize this. In order to get from from where they are to continuous deployment, requires the automation of everything in production. Right? From the infrastructure, which they're getting to, right? Through through DevOps, they're getting that part. They need the network, and they need security. And, you know, anything else that goes along with that storage. We always leave storage out. And they feel so bad about it. I'm sorry, storage. I don't really not like you. I just don't like you. But <laughs> you're necessary. And that has to be automated, too. 
So it, continuous deployment is really about being able to not only be ready, but actually do the deployment, to be able to continuously deploy. And it, I think Martin Fowler would say, it doesn't mean that you have to do it continuously. Yeah. That's it. We're not just going to keep shoving stuff out there, right? It means that you could. At any time, you are ready to deploy this with the push of a button. And that means it all has to be automated. It needs to be, it has been tested. It's all ready to go. Everything's in place for us to deploy at any time. Because nobody is, it, nobody outside of certain very large companies that always talk about it actually do more than one deploy um, a, a week, a day, right? I mean, maybe. Um, usually it's more, right, a month. Right, they'll do one deploy in a month if you're lucky, right? But it's being able to do that. So it's important for us because we talk, we don't have a lot to do, right? As a network infrastructure service company, right? I mean, we do all this stuff, right? CI, not, we don't really play, right? There's not really a lot for us to do in continuous integration because we're not part of the build process for an application. Now, when it comes to things like, um, security and scale, then we start playing in the continuous delivery, right? Because they may might want to be doing that testing a lot earlier than they are. So in that respect, right, that should be integrated in. But when you're looking at the big picture, if you're doing DNS and you're doing, you know, access control and, and all this stuff in the network, that's continuous deployment. That's got to be done in the next phase. So it, I think it's important for us to understand the differences and not confuse them. Because when we say continuous delivery, it's not it's not what we think it is right and maybe we should just like not even hey labels are bad let's stop with the labels i i couldn't agree more we need to stop with those labels and 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 it's actually pretty clear it's it's the two cds that are just getting used interchangeably and that is that is definitely causing a lot of issues and and actually we, there's a great example i i saw a demonstration this morning of um, one of my colleagues is writing uh, an IAP, a, a service template, and they're developing this. And in their development environment, they're continually committing, because they're very clever, to GitHub where it goes. However, the cool bit that they've done is they're using Jenkins, and it automatically picks up as part of the commit process, pulls that latest build into a cloud environment and it runs through the entire test script and it hammers this code and tests it and tests it and tests it. And then the final step of the commit only actually happens once it's passed through the entire test and magically it just appears on GitHub and it says, hey, I'm good. But if it breaks, it just never appears at the other end. Now that's that, there's, there's the delivery, but that's not deployment. Now deployment at the end of that can choose as part of the deployment process to say, get me the last version that made it through the test and the commit. So it might make a pull off GitHub and say, I'm going to use the latest version. But the thing is, it never would have got there if the delivery failed and then the integrated delivery environment failed and never got the commit to finish anyway. So the two, two different loops kind of running side by side and one can only pull out. You see what I'm doing there with the, how's that like? <laughs> I wanted to just give that example that that, that that delivery process was actually the creation of the, the templates and the automation frameworks that could make the deployment possible. And then the deployments leveraging those things and using them afterwards. And that's where they're extremely separate processes. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Just because it's ready to be deployed doesn't mean it is, right? That's got to be, that could be based on any, right, time of day, somebody pushing a button, um, right, somebody scheduling it. I, it. It could be done automatically. As soon as this is passed, then deploy it. That could happen. That's like utopia, right? When everything just flows beautifully, so it just happens, right? We're nowhere near that. I mean, we, we're not even ready for really continuous deployment. I mean, we're getting there. We're getting pieces of it put together, um, you know, as we're learning more about how this needs to work. Now, um, but we're still a ways from the automatically doing it. But it's still you got to get you got to start somewhere, right? And you got to start with those pieces. Let's, let's be realistic though. I mean, often in the way development cycles work, you, you often add some function, functionality and you commit that, but that's only one piece of a larger process of functionality that could be leveraged by a deployment team. They don't want to commit and deploy every single step you might make. As a developer, you're committing all the time because you don't want to lose your code and you want to document, this is why I changed this function, it now behaves like this, because I'm setting up that for these two functions that are coming. You don't want to roll out and have continuous deployment hammering every single commit that goes, even if it did pass the testing. No, what you want actually is to then hand over to deployment and say, look, okay, of those last seven commits, you're actually interested in this one here that brings all of those together and there's your functionality now. Now deploy that version. So there's going to be that manual step in the interim where, I mean, do you really want to have a production deployment for every single committed feature and function? I don't think we're there yet. Does, does every commit that a developer makes bring a life-changing feature? I, I would hope not. I'd hope they're committing more often than that, don't you think? Um, I don't know. I think, that's, um, I think that's an entire different discussion about how much fantasy is involved in the description of uh, a developer's daily life and how many times they're committing and deploying and how much this is this is happening I know that in enterprises it doesn't work that way um, yeah. right the build process is not they're not committing continually um, right they may be committing you know maybe once a day maybe twice a day maybe once a week um, the, the actual build process probably doesn't happen on a continual basis, right? It's probably, right, a lot less frequent, just like the deploys. It's a very different environment, right? They're not committing every change. That would be, wow, key change, key change. I mean, you hit save a lot. I mean, come on, right? I mean, when you don't want to lose your changes, that's the big thing, right? But you're not... You're not necessarily committing, you're right, every function you wrote, but you're you're hitting save a lot. Right? If yeah. your machine's ever like blown up and you've lost code, it's annoying. So you save a lot <laughs> and make sure it's there. But I don't think you're committing it all that much, right? Yeah, okay, so I, I provided a slightly exaggerated example. Yes. Yes. Exaggerated. I, I merely wanted to paint the picture that you you <laughs> may not necessarily do a production deployment right. for every thing that's rolled out. I mean, right. you are not. That's absolutely. That feature's fine, but a marketing campaign says that we're not going to put that out until next quarter. So therefore, it's just it's going to sit there. It's completed. It's gone through the continuous delivery, testing, and release process, but not the continuous deployment isn't going to happen because we've decided it's not it's not for production yet. It's right. It's, 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 it's not market ready from a, a business perspective. Maybe could be what stops that process from going ahead. 
Okay. We agree then. Good to have you keeping me honest. delude <laughs> <laughs> our audience with unicorn stories, that, especially magic rainbow unicorns uh, that do not exist. We'll do our best not to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on to um to one of my favorites now. Okay. Structure as code versus programmable infrastructure. Go. As is a simile, okay? In in the English language, as is a simile. And it implies that one is treating something in a manner similar to. So you're treating infrastructure, right? The configurations, the templates, um, you know, all of those kinds of artifacts. You're treating it like code. So you're storing it in repositories, you're doing code reviews, you're doing diffs, you're you're documenting it, you know, all that good stuff, right? You're doing that, you're treating it like you would code. Um, programmable infrastructure just means that the infrastructure is programmable. It has APIs and you can write code and it and it runs and it's it's a thing. Um, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're storing it. The two are not. I don't need. How do these get mixed up? Something that's programmable means that you can you can program it to do something, right? You can change the behavior some way or control it programmatically with an API. As code is right is a is a way of thinking and an approach to how you manage it and deploy it the other one is just how you do that so strategy tactic I, you I, implement I had such a simple and easy answer for that because i think in a lot of cases infrastructure as code is being almost treated as though a developer is just pulling in infrastructure resources while they're coding. And that's not actually what it means at all. That fits under the programmable infrastructure. And, and, and actually it was, it was actually a really simple definition that you, you gave there. So I, I appreciate that. It's, yeah, it's actually about managing configurations in a code style fashion and doing those kind of things, not, not actually literally this function is magically actually replacing an entire chassis of <laughs> capability. It is not that. And I, I keep seeing that one get thrown about um, a little bit of a confused manner, I think, the infrastructure as code. Programmable infrastructure, I think that one's pretty clear just from the words themselves. I'm making my infrastructure programmable. Yeah. Can you make it in can you make it programmable or does it have to be programmable? Oh, are we suggesting that the infrastructure itself can do programming now? Please no. No, no, what I'm saying is it has to be it has to be you you don't act, you don't make it programmable, it, it is programmable. Is it programmable an adjective? Let's let's go English. I want you to diagram the sentence for me, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is like that Monty Python graffiti sketch where conjugate the verbs. <laughs> Back to Monty Python already, but um, no, I, yeah, it's it's interesting actually the amount of organisations. And this isn't just actually interesting is not a strong enough term. I I find it awesome that organisations, a lot of organisations, um, that. I'm talking to 
are really pushing back on their suppliers, on their vendor list and saying that if you can't meet this level of programmability, you vanish off of our list. Even if your technology is the best at what it does, if I can't use it in a programmable fashion, then you're dead to me. And <laughs> it's pretty black and white. If you've seen some of this programmability capability studies that, that large organizations have documented and now are basically going to all of the vendors and, and the, you have zero response. If you don't meet the survey, you can't then turn around and say, but look at this feature we developed that you asked for. They don't care. They're like, but if I can't, make it programmable infrastructure, then I can't automate it. And therefore you're breaking, not just, you're not just stopping me getting that feature I wanted, you're breaking my entire business model. And I love that that's become such a big priority. And I, I'd like to see more and more of this. I, I really love it when enterprises are pushing back now and just saying, look, if you can't fit, if I can't plug you into my orchestrator and make you part of an automated process, then, Go and think about what you've done. <laughs> Go sit in the corner and just think about what you've done. I mean, are you, are you seeing this kind of trend as well? Like, I, I love this. I haven't seen it, but it, it makes sense, right? I mean, that's, you get, um, it, right now people have some pieces of, of network infrastructure so old that the only way to include it in a process like that is basically screen scraping, right? I mean, you got to grab it and, you know, expect scripts. I expect this response. Let's hope it comes back that way. Um, this is not, right, that's time consuming. It's error prone. Um, it's not really a good basis for, for automation and for a, a reliable uh, process. So, you know, making it, making sure that it's going to fit somehow into your orchestration environment, right, in your requirements makes sense moving forward. Why would you ever get something that you could not include, even if you're not doing it today, right? The organizations buy infrastructure on a, what, two to five year cycle? So maybe they're not doing the orchestration right now, but in two years they plan to have it. So you, if they're buying you today, you better be able to fit in that, right? It's a, it makes sense. I, I don't see why it would, you know, be surprising to anybody, why anyone would walk in without a capable, product and go, oh, we didn't think of that, right? It's the API economy exists in two forms, right? There's the app side, but there's also the infrastructure side and it's huge. It's not, it's not visible, but it's there and it's going to have a big impact on the entire industry. Yeah, that's, I, I love that term, the API economy. I think, I think that's, that's something we should talk uh, definitely more about. So we've, we've kind of run out of time today already. I, uh, I try not to let these things run for hours and hours, but it means that you have to commit to coming back and doing another episode in the future. I hope I can count on that, Laurie. <laughs> I think I can manage that, yes. Maybe you Just might you, wear your Wisconsin um, cheese head in, in the next episode we did. I, I didn't see that here, so we're going to have to have you back. So, uh, yeah, I'm calling you out on that in an episode now. We talked after the episode. Yeah. You said maybe you'd wear it, so now, now it's expected. I, you know, I'll, I'll dig it out. Hopefully next time I have a reason to wear it and be happy, right? It was, it was, maybe that's why it's all sadness this week. <laughs> that one point, one point. Maybe uh, I'm not a 49er supporter. I mean, we've got nothing to talk about at all. <laughs> so... Well, well, <laughs> 
I think final comment, you know, if you want to give anyone a takeaway from this episode, I, I think it's that last topic we talked about. Um, if you're in any kind of situation now where you're investing in more infrastructure, don't be investing in infrastructure that's going to prevent you from remaining competitive. That's going to stall you in any business process because it is not programmable. So it, it's really important to ensure that anything you're evaluating uh, in this day and age, I mean, what's the typical lifespan? Three to five years, people might have infrastructure. In five years' time, if you're still not able to be automating your delivery and therefore freeing up all of your resources, both people and infrastructure resources, to be moving on to the next thing, then it's going to be really hard to compete against other organizations and to stay relevant and, and actually to be more efficient and effective with the resources you have, both protein and carbon-based resources. So, I mean, I, th I think that's the big, that's the message I would, I would give her. And don't use the terms wrongly or Laurie will get really upset at you, but <laughs> use all of these terms right. But please, uh, I implore people to, to be very conscious of that, of this API economy and that the importance of, of um, just checking that you really can completely automate. If there is functionality missing from the API and there's certain features that you have to keep going back to the GUI or the CLI, then maybe stall that investment until actually that can deliver on those things because that's, that's really important these days. Um, you, you don't want to have the spotlight on you as the team that's failing for things to go live in an effective time span. Would you, would you say that's a fair ask of our listeners in this, this week's episode, Laurie? I, that would be that would be a fair ask, yes. And do not worry about what label you're using. If you yeah. can be cloud-like, then you can be dev-like. Yeah. I think that's there. You go. Just be dev-like. Dev-like. Yeah. That's right. Be dev-like. I like that. Better. Okay. Well. Thanks again for joining us, Laurie. Always an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Nathan Pierce. That's me. Laurie McVitie. That's that other person over there. Thanks for joining us, Laurie. Have a fantastic day. You've been watching a Red Talks episode. That's Ranting Engineers and DevOps. Thanks for listening. <laughs>